This is your host, Kimberly Bailey, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Aaron Callahan, and we are talking about veteran and first responder mental health. Hey, Kim. How are you doing tonight? Good. It's been a while since we've been here, so I'm glad to see your beautiful face and all I of our know. guests. You have been busy. You've been doing all kinds of community outreach stuff and helping out with protests and things like that, and... I've been busy with new opportunities and managing my clients over here. So it's definitely been a minute, but thankfully we have so many stories to share and tell. Like we had a little bit of time to catch up. So it's good to see you too. Absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, of course, R&R. Uh, so today we have a whole panel of beautiful ladies here, and we're going to be talking about mental health. And so I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Pamela Heal, and she's going to tell us what her pro tip is for R&R. &R. Hey, Pamela. Hi. Hello, hello. Um, yes, my name is Pamela Heal. I am an eight-year Navy veteran and um, sexual assault victim advocate. Um, myself a survivor of military sexual trauma and domestic violence and the whole gamut of, of things that can happen. But uh, I think my favorite self-care tip my, and definitely my most, my most utilized self-care tip is take a bath, honey. Skincare in general is like my love language, okay? Like everyone knows if there's something, that if you, you want to give me something, you just want to bless me. For whatever reason, uh, skincare is always a good way to go. Bath, bath, anything, bath salts, bath stuff, bath, I mean, bath bombs, whatever. And my, one of my favorite things for, to do, and I do this pretty much every day, um, you know, when I get to a point where I just feel like my anxiety is, is at a place where I really need to bring it down. Um, baths are so great. I love to light my candles and play my music and smell my smells. And it just makes me feel like I'm doing something really kind for myself. And it really allows me to breathe without all that external kind of um, stimulation that happens all day long, every day. Um, baths just help me so much. So, and, you know, sometimes you don't have the energy to like work out and like there, there's, you know what I mean? Like, especially when you're exhausted or you, you have so many responsibilities and you're just, I need a minute. The last thing you want to do is get on a treadmill. Honestly, let's be real. And I don't know, baths help me. That's all I'm going to say. Get on the treadmill too. Yes. Sure, great. But take a And it's funny that she mentioned the workout thing because I, I think, Erin, I saw you laugh, but I definitely need to work out and I haven't done that yet. And I think I promised everybody that I would, but I'm going to. Well, I'll do that. I mean, We're getting to that, though. okay? But those are that's a really great self-care tip because, like you said, especially you, Pamela, we're going to get into 
hearing about each of our guests and their like their bios. But I know I know Pamela. I know all of our guests actually very personally. And Pamela is an amazing advocate. So I think that is a great self-care tip for you because you have a lot of things going on. Um, do you want to share? We have two other panelists today, but I want them each to kind of share who they are and what their experience is, and then we can get into our conversation today. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can um, share a little bit more. I don't really, I didn't really have a statement prepared. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I was in the Navy for eight years. I was in Master at Arms, um, which is military police, and um, took great pride in my service and all of the things that I accomplished as a sailor. Um, and I was the first responder in the military too. So it's kind of like that double hat. Um, it was, you know, it definitely prepared me for the rest of life put it that way. Um, but yeah, in the time of my service, I experienced military sexual trauma six separate times. Every single time it was swept under the rug. Um, I never got justice. And I was retaliated against the two times that I did report. Um, I was retaliated against and the times that I didn't, I was still, you know, treated like a, like a slut and a liar and a homewrecker and a career ender. And, uh, you know, like it was, it was my goal to just ruin people's lives. <laughs> like, I don't know why they say that, but um, when I got out of the military, I uh, didn't know I had PTSD, you know, like most of us don't. And I really struggle. I mean, I, um, my professional career, I was killing it. You know, I was an educator for Paul Mitchell. I, um, was a social media and cosmetology educator for Paul Mitchell and loved it. Um, but I was always running away from these traumas that happened in my childhood and also in the military and got to a point where I just couldn't run away anymore and quit my job so I could do all of the drugs. <laughs> Literally, that's what I was doing with my time and my money. I was just just escaping um, and realized at, at one point that like the amount of self-hate and self-loathing that I had inside of me was going to kill me um, if the drugs didn't and started to get help and started to get treatment. And the last two years of my life have been, um, I decided to start sharing you know, all of the things that I've done to survive. It's not necessarily ever been about the trauma for me, but like, how do we, how do we heal? How do we get better together? And, um, you know, that in that time, I've had the honor of advocating for women in Washington, D.C. I've had the honor of giving a number of interviews to people, staging protests, um, planning sit-ins, writing petitions. I mean, I'm, um, it's, it's been an interesting experience because, you know, just because you, you are in treatment now and you're in recovery and you're no longer doing drugs and you're no longer homeless, it doesn't mean that it's, you're just like healed and better and everything's cool. And I think a lot of times people think advocates, um, we're just like this ray of shining light and everything about us is healed and lovely and look at all the things that we've survived we must be angels on earth and we never struggle or we never get triggered or we never you know want to beat our head against the wall but still human so i think for me that's my biggest message anywhere i go is like hey we're all really still just surviving too i love that 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if because you were, or maybe not because you were a sailor, but I wonder if the whole bath and being a sailor thing are kind of connected yeah, like, <laughs> maybe I don't know I do love yeah. I do love the water I do love I do the water too. I was a mermaid in a past life I'm pretty sure and I like to eat in the bathtub too so <laughs> yeah and Aaron, used to one of our self-care tips I was thinking about the float therapy thing and you're like I float in my bathtub and I'm like that's what it sounds like <laughs> Yeah, yes. no, totally. I can get behind all that. But thank you. That That is a beautiful story. And, and I love your sense of humor about uh, the way you talk about it is very real, too. You know, so I appreciate yes. that. Yeah. Who else Who's we got? Next? Hi, I'm Karina. Um, I guess just like Pamela, I deal with a lot of that trauma using humor. You kind of laugh at it and it kind of somewhat makes it feel okay and I guess it doesn't overwhelm the other person you're talking about it to. They kind of laugh too. Um, but a little about me. Um, I'm an Army veteran. I just got out in March, so I'm still adjusting, which is a huge, I guess, part of the healing. Um, well, I was in the, I joined in 2016, so, you know, I joined, I was super excited. You know, I come from a military family. I was like, yay, I brought this uh, this army generation back alive. You know, I'm the oldest, you know. Um, my little cousin joined the Air Force, so we were kind of rebooting it up. And so, you know, I, I joined under the impression that it was possible. You know, uh, I was told by family members that, you know, this is the, there's a majority of men. Um, since I was very nice and sweet, you know, they told me, uh, don't, don't laugh. You know, if someone says this, uh, kind of stop it ahead of time. And I was like, okay, you know, if this ever happens to me, I am going to stop it. You know, I didn't doubt that one second. And so, you know, I went to Korea the first time, um, in 2017, absolutely loved it. I was part of a medevac team there. Um, I was, uh, within three months, I was the first female on the um, recognized for the North Korean defector mission, which is really cool because, you know, I'm a little private and I'm getting paraded around and talking to the media and about this mission. And it was, it was pretty, uh, it made me want to do more. Uh, so I was, you know, it was, it was a great step for me. Um, I was injured in Korea and that never stopped me from being able to do my job. Um, it never stopped me from feeling like I, I had something that prevented me from doing better. Uh, it was just one of those things that, you know, okay, yeah, I'm injured, but I can still do amazing things until I went to Fort Hood. Why don't we, if it's okay with you, let's pause for a second and meet Dee and then, and then we can all like dive in. So hi, I'm Dee. I am joining you guys from Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm an army veteran. Um, My husband is also uh, an (laughs) army veteran and I joined the military in 2001. Um, I was born and raised in Mexico. So English is my second language. And when I went to boot camp in 2001, like I, that was like learning another language, right? So, um, (laughs) so yeah, I had a really good battle buddy that told me what it meant, all those commands and the weird stuff. So my first duty assignment and only duty assignment was in Mannheim, Germany. 
And that's where my life changed. I wish I had like this honorable story of why I joined, but mm -hmm. it was really for college. It was for the tuition money and my parents couldn't afford it. Um, they worked in the fields in Arizona their entire lives. And like, that was a way for me to, to pay for school. Um, so once I got to Germany um, in 2001, December, it was actually Christmas Eve. And like, I wanted to go to Germany. I wanted to go to Paris and do the shopping and walk around and like all of that stuff. I'm coming from a little tiny town in Arizona, right? So I want to go somewhere in Europe. So that's where my lives changed. Then 9-11 happened. And, um, you know, I never imagined I end up in war. And I, at that time, I was in, um, I was in a, um, I was in a relationship, and it became toxic. It became abusive, and um, then we deployed uh, to Iraq in 2003. And when we came back, I just couldn't do it anymore. I wanted to break it off when we were deployed, but I had that fear of. Uh, because it was already abusive and violent. I was like, what if, you know, he does something like we do have weapons. We do have ammo, like all of that. Right. So I waited till we got back. And of course, nobody knows what's going on behind the scenes. And um, when I broke it off, it's like, like, I'm the bad one. I'm the bad person. But nobody really knew what was happening. Uh, I never really told anyone like I, I never talked about it. Um, it was, it was just something that I kept to myself, right? And then we got deployed again uh, six months later after returning with the same unit. Um, and then before that, um, my significant other actually uh, committed suicide. He died by suicide. And so, of course, it was my fault. Um, so I had to deploy again with the unit that thought it was my fault that he took his life uh, because I broke up with him and he just like lost it. Right. But nobody knew what, when, what went on and why I had to do that. Mm -hmm. So my second deployment, I was, so I was a gunner. I was a, I was a truck driver in the military, but then well deployed, I was a gunner. We did escort missions. I was a 50 cal gunner and, you know, I put myself on missions like every day just to stay busy and stay out um, outside the wire. Cause that's where I felt safe. You know, mm -hmm. I feel safe with my gun truck team and like that was my survival mode. So when I came back, I was out of the military within 30 days. I was like, I waived all of my medical, like everything. I was like, I went out and I was the one that one like had all the ranks to the Sergeant Major of the Army. Like I wanted to be like all of that. Right. Um, but it, it was taken from me. Uh, you know, yes, I left. I made the choice to get out. But that was really my survival. Like, you know, it was a surviving mm -hmm. technique because had I, I knew that had I gone back again, like I probably would have never made it back. Uh, I was, you know, it was so much depression. Like I was misinformation and nobody even cared that I was not information for about a week. Um, you know, people were just like, I was the one with the, with the scarlet letter, you know, I was the bad person. And so I just, you know, I, I come from a, a traditional Mexican family. Uh, we don't talk about any of this stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. I never told my family at all. Like I never told anyone. And I did what Karina said. I stayed busy. I filled my calendar up so that I didn't have any time to think about anything. Um, I worked for several nonprofits and I think I experienced some healing 
by helping others. You know, I was helping other MSC survivors without letting them know that I was one. Um, you know, and that kind of helped me, you know, work through my things. And I never put in a claim for the VA, so I don't even have a claim for that. Um, it took me 10 years to even document some of the things that, you know, that were bothering me health-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because I worked for a nonprofit that was like, you're crazy. Like, you need to do something about it, right? Um, so now I'm a social work uh, I'm a social work student at USC. I have two more semesters to go. And um, that's the reason why. That's, uh, I'm so happy that I've met you guys and uh, that I've joined. I think... Um, it happened under like really terrible circumstances that Vanessa almost brought us, brought a lot of people together um, to kind of continue the healing process and lean on each other uh, for, um, you know, to get through it and make some change. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't share details of my story. I don't share much of it. Um, I just, because I, I feel that I don't, for me, I don't need that. Um, you know, some people, you know, help talking about it and stuff, it helps them. I'm not at that, I'm not at that stage. That's not my healing process. Uh, mine is like, I just want to help and uh, let everyone know that, you know, it's, you don't have to like talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. you can do your own part. I was talking to Pamela before the show and I was like, you don't, you know, there's so much, like we all have our own way of uh, mm-hmm. engaging in advocating and raising awareness that uh, we just need to, you know, for me, I just needed to be okay with not trying to do 10 things at once, <laughs> you know, just to kind of, I was looking for validation. Uh, I think that's what it was. I was looking for validation that I was doing something about it, that I was helping others. Uh, but for me, um, that's that's who I am. Uh, I'm married. We have two dogs. Uh, we, I have two stepsons uh, and a bunch of nieces and nephews. And they're like my kids. I was like, I'm that aunt that never had kids where all the kids are always at my house. That's me. <laughs> that's me. So, so, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I love that point that we, you know, you just made me realize we all are at different stages of healing from our That's really cool. So this, this is going to be a really interesting panel. Um, man. Okay. Some of the things I was saying, some of the common themes that I heard from like a lot of you are like that maladaptive coping. I know staying busy all the time. I kind of had a similar reaction. And I think I, I tell Pamela this all the time. I think I kind of still do this where I continually always keep myself so busy that I don't have to sit with like the trauma. And I think that's a common reaction for a lot of trauma survivors. I mean, there's some that, that are the opposite, but then there's some that like continually stay busy just so they can keep going. I think being busy too, for me, I'm, I mean, to know me is to know that I am the constant workaholic. And for me, a lot of that has to do with not necessarily hiding because I can, I can find a way to distract myself from reality easily. But gosh, if there's an opportunity for me to be a people pleaser and to me to just say, yes, yes, yes. Oh, I can help you with that. Oh, I can help with that. Oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. I'll absolutely take on that responsibility. Yeah, I know how to do it. And I'd rather just do it for you. You know, there are so many, I still do this. I'm still guilty of this. There just because to me, that's, that's like a safety, uh, safety behavior, right? Like if I, 
make sure that I'm taking care of everyone and I'm offering myself in every possible way, then everyone will like me and no one will hurt me and I will be safe and no one will turn against me because I'm showing you how how helpful I am and how, you know, capable I am and how I know people everywhere and I can connect you with that person and I can do that for you. And you like me, right? Everything's cool, right? You're not going to hurt me. You're not going to turn on me. You're not going to betray me or abuse me or abandon me. We're good, right? (laughs) I feel like that's my (laughs) whole Yeah, I, I know. I'm like, I feel like she's talking for me. I'm like, yeah, I, I totally think get it. That, um, like, we're nurturers by nature, mm-hmm. you know, like, we're nurturers. We try, we're fixers. We want to fix things. And uh, I think it's also for, well, for me, it was like I was by helping others and doing things and raising awareness, I was speaking out without speaking, like, without sharing my personal story. But I was still, you know, and so for me, like, that was because I, I had never told anyone so for me to be involved and do all kinds of things you know all the time like that was my way of speaking out and like saying something so Karina I feel something for your mom like I feel like I mean I'm gleaming but I feel like your your mom knew what was up and she was like girl get I don't know was she kind of like a the voice of reason for you or my mom is strength maybe my best friend like my mom, I grew up in a really blunt family. I feel like that's a lot of Latin, Latina blunt family. So uh, my mom never really, you know, lied to me. She always told me straight up and that's how I learned. And uh, mm-hmm. I know the way that my mom raised me, um, you know, I know that's why I was able to survive uh, because there were those points of times where I was mad at the other girl, <laughs> you know, I was like, why, why me? And why I helped you? Why didn't you help? You know, why didn't you help? Mm-hmm. Me? And then I got to thinking, you know, uh, you know, I started reading, I don't know. I, I'm, I love reading. So I started reading so many, um, uh, personal development books. And so I was like, okay, maybe this was like meant to, uh, you know, um, ha- like happened to me because maybe the other girl wasn't strong enough to deal with this. So mm-hmm. then I got, you know, super religious. And then I started, you know, like reading the Bible and, you know, going to church and trying to find all these different outlets of, you know, like something to you know, help me understand what happened. And so, mm-hmm. you know, with all of this, I was talking to my mom the other day because I know uh, I always laugh. I'm like, oh, I always see like different parts of me, different versions of me. You know, I see the version version of me before I joined. And then, you know, I see myself in the beginning and then the middle once all this started happening and then like at the end and the now. And I'm like, how do I, you know, I always see different versions of myself and I don't know which one's my true self or who I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was talking to her, I was like, you know, um, I even journaled. I'm a journal. So I actually went back and read it and, you know, in my journaling, um, I had written about, you know, uh, maybe this was supposed to happen to me and I feel like I should keep fighting because someone out there is too weak and can't fight. And so that's why the whole thing with, you know, Vanessa hit me. Cause I was like, I wrote about this in my journal. Oh my gosh. I wrote about it, you know? And I was like, what do I do now? You know, it's in my, like, it was just one of those, like, you know, okay, I got to stand up for people. And I even did what, you know, D did. Um, you know, once I switched units, I was so terrified of coming forward because of the harassment that I had faced at the first one that I started hanging around the sharp office 
until like finally they invited me in for like coffee and then I would always fix their computers because I worked in S6. I was, uh, you know, I did um, IT, so I worked in the office. And so um, I would always help those people there because I felt like I wasn't worthy of help myself because uh, I didn't stand up for myself the way that I thought I would have stood up. So by the time that I did meet the victim advocate, she was like, she like looked at me and I was like, yeah, I've been hiding from you, you know. <laughs> it was one of those things that I was like, I wanted to help people, but I didn't, I, I felt like I wasn't worthy. And so um, I didn't want to take the attention away from people who were worthy of that help, if that makes sense. Like your story wasn't good enough, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, like, you know, and my mom, oh my gosh, I can't tell you. My mom is very uh, vocal. <laughs> she's very vocal. When I tell you, she's the, probably the reason why I was, I got home and I'm alive. It was because of her, because it got so bad to, you know, I was being told to go kill myself. I was put in these environments on purpose because uh, it would be easier to, you know, uh, have, have, I was a high risk suicidal soldier. So it's easier for me to kill myself that way. They didn't really have to sweep it under the rug because I wasn't there to cause a problem. So she, she, uh, she got me home. I'm like, Oh my God, you saved my life, mom. I love your mom yeah. already. I know what you mean though about like that, which self is your real self thing. And I, I think mm-hmm. it, it does come together all the time because when I first left my marriage, I was in such trauma. Like my friends hated me. My, I mean, at first they were there for me, but after a while, like they would say that I was a narcissist and I'm Mm -hmm. so selfish and I never think of anybody else but myself. But honestly, I couldn't think of anybody else but myself. I was struggling to get through the day and I, I regret some of that, but I also have some self-compassion in that, you know, I really don't think I had a choice in the matter, you know, and I love the people who helped watch my kids the days that I could just lay there and cry or, um, you know, just, I remember one of my family friends was there for me after he had, he had hit me while I was driving a car with my kids in the back seat. He just punched me right across the face. And I went to this girl and she was like my safe place. And then years later she turned around and she was like, I don't even know how you're a therapist. You're the most selfish person I've ever met. You are such a narcissist. And I just like, I didn't even know how to apologize or, or make her understand that when you're in trauma, you're in complete self-preservation mode. So like, I don't even know that girl, that girl's not me, but that girl was me in reaction to everything that had happened. I think eventually you will find like your, your center of gravity again. But like you said, you're kind of early on in getting out of the military. So it's probably just a, a clusterfuck right now. (laughs) I got to hand it to you, Karina, because when I got out of the military, it took me five years to even, people would ask me why I got out and I would just be like, I just wanted a new life. (laughs) When in reality, the answer was, you know, after, after six assaults, you, you kind of start to go, maybe this isn't a safe place for me. And I, you know, I was like you, like, Oh, you guys think I'm, I'm weak. You guys think that you can say these things about me. You guys think that you can abuse me and, and all of these things. Well, I'm going to be the best 
damn everything this place mm-hmm. has ever seen. And I'm going to, you know, blow every board out of the water and I'm going to make rank every opportunity that I have. And I'm going to beat all of these big muscly men every time we run across anything. I've got this. And I think that's why I spent eight years in uniform because I wanted to prove to everybody that I had what it takes. And that is great, but it's also really, I mean, I was, I was signing up for abuse by doing that simply because I just, I wanted to prove that I was worthy of it, but it took me literally five years to say out loud to anyone the real reason why I got out. And it took me years to even want to speak to veterans. Like, I don't want to sit around and tell sea stories. I don't want to sit around and, and glamorize this period of my life that was fucking hell for me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to pretend like, you know, wearing the uniform was just completely fully honorable in every possible way, because I'm going to be honest, it wasn't. But having that conversation, I wasn't ready to have it for a really, really long time. And I think because you are, Karina, already comfortable at least talking about it, maybe you're new in in that transition from getting out, maybe it's you're new in your healing, but I think that the support that you have from your mom and also your willingness to share your story. And by the way, not everyone needs to share their story, but I think for you, I, 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 I hope that it's encouraging for you. And I say that I think you're going to, um, I think your healing journey is, is going to be a, well, less rocky one than mine. Hopefully, <laughs> seriously, yeah. hopefully I think you're handling yourself really beautifully. I, I totally agree because I, I know Karina a little bit just because we've recently met, but um, I've been very impressed by her and by her ability to articulate what happened to her. Um, and like like we were saying, like Dee was saying, like Pam was saying, um, and that's one of the ones I, one of the things I want to reiterate during this episode is that um, you don't have to tell your story publicly if you're not in a safe space to do so. And if you're not... Um, there in your healing journey. And that's totally okay. I know um, Karina had mentioned earlier about the Vanessa Guillen case. And a lot of us here on this panel tonight are advocates um, for justice for Vanessa. But I always reiterate that it's, you like Dee was saying, you shouldn't be telling your story for, like if you're seeking validation, because that should come within, that should come maybe between you and a therapist or whatever a safe space may be. But if you're looking to empower other people, then that would be a better reason to tell your story out out loud to other people because you know it's a trauma story. This is traumatic. This is triggering. This is real life, and it's not just a trend or a hashtag. And I want everyone to, that's listening to to realize that even if you don't choose to tell your story publicly, it doesn't make it any less true. And you're still we still believe you, and your story is still incredibly valid. So I think that's really important. And yes, Karina, I'm very impressed by you as well. <laughs> That was really well said. Like a lot of people, um, you know, when I started the hashtag, it instantly started getting shares. I had a lot of friend requests, Mm -hmm. comments, a lot of messages. And uh, there was even, you know, one girl who had came forward and she, you know, word for word had taken, you know, my post and had posted it and people were attacking her. And it was like, it wasn't about that. It is about, you know, if that's the way that she knows how to talk about what happened to her and she can relate, then do it. You know, don't sit here and, you know, harass this person. Like you're part of the problem. 
you know, um, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of, you know, people attacking. Eventually they gave up because, you know, once you start attacking one of us, like someone else is going to come in and say, Hey, you need to stop. You need to remove yourself from this. And, uh, you know, a lot of people did privately come and tell me, you know, their story. I had a lot of high school kids, surprisingly, uh, you know, ask me a lot of questions, you know, because they wanted yeah. to go in through the, you know, JROTC program or ROTC program. And I was like, oh, uh, well, here's, you know, I answer their questions and stuff. But, you know, just because you don't come forward with your story publicly, um, uh, I'm like screwed up that word. But it doesn't mean your your story is less important than anybody's. You know, it, you have to be patient with yourself. You know, you there's times where you want to be on you know step five, but you're on step one. And that's okay. So. Absolutely, I agree. And like I would say, that the healing journey is definitely not a linear one. I say this all the time. It took me like ten years to be able to be in a safe space to be able to even tell my story. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to rush it either. I mean, I know people feel. I think people might feel pressure because a lot of people are coming out with their story with the I am Vanessa Guillen hashtag. And they may be like, if I don't tell my story now, like, will people not believe me if I tell it later? And I don't think that's true at all. Like we're, we're here for the long haul. And a lot of us here in this space tonight are advocates and you can always reach out to almost probably any of us. I want to say, I won't, I won't speak for the other people on this panel, but um, you can always reach out to me and Aaron if you ever need, a safe space to tell your story or if you need resources and we can connect you there. But yeah, definitely. I think that's really interesting that you had high school students reach out to you. Um, yes. But that's also a very important discussion to have. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I was like put on the spot, you know, like how do you talk to uh, these kids that want to go into the you instantly well, I think, a mentor? <laughs> I think that's why it's really important as an advocate to understand what your role is. Right. Because um, Karina, I, I don't know how, how long you've been telling your story or how long you've been in this space, but, um, it's only been a couple of years for me, but I learned pretty, pretty early on when you tell your story that people will feel deeply connected to you for that reason. You know, they, they just do like, this is someone who's lived a parallel to me and they know all of these feelings that I've gone through and they're, they know all of these horrible things that happen, not just in the trauma, but in reacting to it for years to come. And so, you know, you, I do get a lot of messages from people and it's, you have to be careful as an advocate not to turn into a therapist because there is a big difference between someone who's sharing their story to raise awareness and someone who's talking to, to a, you know, a triggered veteran or a triggered survivor um, who really in that, you know, I'm not a trained therapist. I'm not a social worker. I'm, I'm, and it's important to remember what your role is here because what we really need to make sure we're doing is connecting folks with the resources that they need to really help them heal and thrive. And so um, that for me as an advocate, that's my number one kind of objective. Anytime I tell my story or anytime I'm on a panel like this or anytime I'm in a situation where, you know, I am trying to move, push the conversation forward. It's not about me. It's not about my story. It's about uh, helping our community truly heal, finding uh, finding ways for us to heal, finding ways to keep this from happening in the future. Uh, but there are so many trained professionals who are trained, literally trauma specialists um, 
are, you know, the, those folks that answer the veterans crisis line, they know what the heck they're doing, right? There's so many, there are so many resources available for folks who need therapy, who need to, you know, be, be really need to have someone breathe life into them. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to educate folks as, as we are advocating that, yeah, we are here to tell our story and I might be an expert in my own mental health because I've been educated so much on how to take care of me, but I have not been educated on how to take care of somebody else. That's not my job. So it's hard sometimes when you start to get those messages because you do want to be that, you know, nurturing, loving, let me give you my whole soul right now. Let me stay up all night and message you. People will do that to you. Um, and if you haven't experienced that yet, I'd, I'd be shocked. You, you must have. Um, but, you know, it's really important in, in situations like that to say, to set that boundary for yourself and for them and, you know, explain like, hey, there are some great resources out there, resources out there for you. If you can't find them, I'm here to help you find them. But let's connect you with somebody who can really give you, uh, give you a fair shot at healing through this. You know, I think that's really important. I think that I have a question for Dee really quick. Um, Dee, you mentioned like your culture doesn't really talk about this kind of stuff. Am I paraphrasing that kind of right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I am such a blabber mouth. Like I, I totally agree. Not everybody has to share their story, you know, um, and, and That's you true. can share it in different ways to in a small group or publicly or however you need to for your healing. And so like, my question is probably kind of ignorant sounding, but how do you get that connection without talking about it? So for me, uh, so because uh, I, I was raised born and raised in Mexico. Um, I didn't go to, uh, didn't move to the United States till I was 16. Uh, my mom doesn't speak any English. Uh, my family, they're all, we're all, they're also very connected to Mexico. For me, um, it was, honestly, I kept quiet for a very long time. And I, there's still a lot that, um, that I have not shared with my family. And I think we don't, it's almost like a connection to where, they know something happened, they know it was hurt, and their way of supporting and connecting is just to be there for me and don't ask any questions. Um, don't ask, like, what happened? Why? Why did you do? They didn't, they never questioned um, who was it, you know, why didn't I tell anyone? Uh, they just kind of gave me that space to handle it however I wanted to handle it, but also let me know that they were there for me and there were no, there was no judgment. Um, so when I heard, uh, Vanessa Guillen's mom saying that Vanessa came to her and told her, I, I can't remember who I told, I said, if she went to her mom and said that it was happening. I said, there's no way, I said, there's no way, like, like in our culture, especially like we don't just go to our moms and say those things without it being with number one, without being like the last resource, like the last thing, like as a surviving thing for me to tell her. And, um, and I think my mom and my sisters were there the, um, through a lot of stuff with me and like we don't speak about it, but we know it's almost like that connection veterans have or, or survivors that is like, you don't need to tell me, sorry, I know what happened and I feel you. Um, and I think for me, that was very impactful and it kind of shaped the way I, 
uh, went about my healing process, I, I discovered that I needed to allow myself to grieve, to go through the grieving process because you lost a part of yourself. Uh, so it's not a physical loss. It's not you lost a family member or anything like that, but you lost a part of yourself. So um, as uh, Karina and Pamela were saying, and I, Kim too, it's not a linear linear healing process. It's kind of like the grieving process. You never stop grieving. It could be 100 years from now, and tomorrow you wake up like you lost that person just like a few minutes ago. And I feel that that's how it has been for me with this process. Um, I I'm always healing and I'm always growing. Um, and I have to be okay when those days that are not that great. Uh, so yeah, so my culture for me, it, I, I was the only one in the military. I did not come from a military family. My mom did not want me to join. It was like, I came home and was like, yep, I'm leaving. I signed up and it's even on video. Like it was somebody's birthday <laughs> and I walked in and everybody is like, what? <laughs> so you hear all this chatter in Spanish, like, what do you mean? And I was like, yep. And guess what? My duty station is Germany. So I'm going as far away from everyone. <laughs> Yeah. You know, but yeah, I have to really be thankful for the family I have because they allowed me to heal in the way that it worked for me. And that was just to not ask questions and allow me to, to let them know when I needed to be there. That's magical. I like that. Cause I was just like, what, what is she talking about? I can't even, <laughs> I do not keep quiet about nothing <laughs> except for, yeah, except <laughs> Never client confidentiality. That's like not my secrets, but my secrets, I'm never quiet. So I'm pretty, you know, for me now that I'm a social work student and that I've gotten to learn more about like therapy and the importance of mental health and talking about it. Um, I'm very outspoken now with my nieces and nephews. Um, you know, I'm the first one to say like, no, it's okay. Like, you know, if you need medications, you need to go see somebody like there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I've told him, I was like, there's enough stigma out there already for this, that I don't want that stigma to continue, you know, within our own family. And like, you know, it's like, we just need to be okay with it. So now I'm mean, like extremely vocal about it. My niece is at Fort Huachuca at AIT right now. And I was like, did you hear this? I was like, you tell me. I was like, you let me know if something happens. Don't think it's okay because, you know, know so now now I'm like my heart is out there and I'm super vocal but with my own stuff uh it's still you know that's how I just that makes sense I get that it's good to you to normalize mental health like it's nor you normalize it like we we all experience it I think everyone on this channel not I'm watching speak for everybody I know me um, I had mental health issues even going into the profession like mental health profession and getting my degree in mental health you know, I'm, I'm one that's always been pretty vocal. Well, I would say in the last year or so, been really vocal about my own challenges and normalizing that for people. Because even people who have education, like, like us, most people that go into mental health field, I feel like understand because they probably have been through it themselves, potentially. Um, so yeah, but then the other question is, how do you start controlling those triggers and how do you start grounding yourself so that you can be a good advocate for other people who come to you with their trauma stories. Cause that's the other part of it, especially as mental health professionals or advocates who have experienced trauma and also hear a bunch of stories about other people's trauma. I know Erin, um, how do you do that? Like what are your best practices for that? 
you're asking like how do I set a boundary between what I hear and what I feel yes I think part of it is like well I am a trained therapist and so I structure my day with like every single client is one of my babies and you know I'm like all about you next hour all about you next hour all about you so like Mm -hmm. you kind of have to be able to turn it off and move on to the next and then I learned my children are really important too so I got to be able to turn it off at six o'clock or whatever and make it all about them and it's just a, a practice of staying in the moment being mindful and being present with somebody and knowing that it's also okay to move on from that like i i gave that my full attention and it felt like quality so now i have no qualms with moving on to the next thing and also giving that quality um there's no like hierarchy necessarily of what is more important but um but i want to truly experience each thing with my whole heart um and be able to sleep at night too so i go to my own therapy and then kind of like dump it off there but i'm also very visual and so i've always kind of like i look at my office as like a giant file cabinet and there's all these stories in there and at the end of the day i lock it up i keep it safe and then i'll come back the next day and kind of like filter through those stories again lock it up, keep it safe, and then, you know, keep on cycling through. But it's it's something that I visualize as being, like, separate from me so that I can visit it and then go away, you know? I really like that. I yeah. like that a lot. I'll, I'll be honest, the last, the last month has been a real emotional roller coaster. Um, you know, we've talked about Vanessa – I was following that since the very first headline came out. And I, I think we all kind of knew, right. And just that hollow sadness, but also the desperation of like, what's, why does this keep happening? What is, what, what, what's, what are we going to learn? But also why does this keep happening? And why are there so many stories? Um, and, you know, when I saw her mom on TV, it was like watching my mom. It was like, gosh, well, how, how would my mom handle this situation? And to me, I lost my mom uh, to suicide five years ago. She had mental health challenges and I can't imagine my mother having to be in those shoes, standing in front of news cameras, holding a picture of me. The thought of it is, it really destroys me actually. And of course her being gone and her being gone the way that she died is is inherently triggering but you think about all of the all of the for me I think about all of the mental health challenges we host on this planet and I think about you know why those challenges are there and it, it a lot of it does have to do with stigma so thank you D so much for the work you're doing just in your own family because that's where it starts like you know I wish that I could turn back time and educate my family on things that we could have done better and educate myself on things that we could have done better. All we have is here and now though, you know, all we have is now. So, um, I love what you said, Aaron, about separating the things. Cause there have been some days where how, how do I, my phone is blowing up. My phone is blowing up with, with people who need help or with more news articles or with more things. And, 
Uh, I'm, I'm also trying to be a lot more intentional with my time lately, trying to be really like, okay, I've blocked my time for this and that's the only thing that I'm doing right now. But um, I really like what you said about just like really separating it because I think I need that more than I've been doing lately. So I, I'm going to. And I think, I think that's a really uh, good thing because I now am a member of like six or seven pages of uh, like justice for Vanessa or we are Vanessa Guillen. And it's like, it's on my Facebook feed, like constantly. Right. So um, I think I had to like turn off notifications and then allow myself some time on like, when do I choose to go in there and to look um and you know you brought up uh, uh, suicide and the stigma and i'm very sorry for your loss pamela um i'm a i'm a huge um advocate for suicide prevention military and non-military and i had to like that's one of the things i had to bring up in my family is like say the word like say suicide like stop like go, going around it or like you know thinking you know like keeping that stigma alive and I think that's the biggest you know is one of the biggest challenges is just like let's normalize it you know we choose to talk about TikTok and like all these dances and everything else I'm just like why can't we why can't we talk about this just as we talk about something else is it, so yeah kudos to everyone in this panel and like I said I know Dee does a lot of suicide prevention work and you know I think for me with all of this Vanessa Guillen situation that um, we've been talking about lately. I'm always, and I know all of, everyone here on this panel knows that I'm always about mental health. Like, are you mentally okay? Are you in a safe space? And I'm always asking people all the time um, because that's a priority for me. But military sexual trauma, it does. It can result in suicide. It can result in, um, you know, PTSD. It can result in triggers. And with all of this discussion that we've been having currently, um, a lot of people have been triggered and re-traumatized. I know some of the women that I talked to and mentor um, started having nightmares about this case and with themselves in the case. I know that's been very common that I've heard because that's a, nor that's a, that's a PTSD symptom that many of us experience on a normal day. But now that we hear a lot about the details and I think with social media and with the news, like Pamela was saying, um, setting boundaries with how much you read about cases like this because not just her case there's been several other cases like with the I am Vanessa Kean hashtag of details like really you know um triggering details of people's trauma and so it can cause um PTSD symptoms to come up and flare up even if you've been good and you've had good grounding techniques in the past and you're not in that space to have them often I've seen them like start coming again for people so does everybody, I mean, is this something that everybody else has experienced or that you are experiencing? A thousand percent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, I, um, when we got back from, I went to DC a couple weeks ago, um, for a press conference and a rally, um, in honor of her. And when I, and I, you know, I, I led the charge. I was marching down Black Lives Matter Plaza with my banner, like, let's go. And it was a great moment, but I got home and I had one of the worst migraines I've ever had in my life. I get them. They're stressed. They come from stress. And it's because, you know, in the days leading up to that, I was barely eating. I was working a ton. I was making sure I was doing everything that I felt like I had 
to do to be there for everyone. I wasn't checking in on myself and I was just getting ramped up. And it was like, I didn't even stop to question my own self-care because I felt like it was so much more important for me to be present for all the other people I was representing. Mm -hmm. But then what happened? I get back and I realize I've barely been eating. I've barely been drinking any water. I've been running all over the place. I've been working like crazy. And not only was my physical health impacted, my mental health was just driving all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was a big wake up call for me to go, whoa, okay, you can't destroy your own body while you're serving people. And um, yeah, I've, I've really had to put my, my behaviors and my thought processes lately under a microscope just to be like, let's take a little bit better care of ourselves. I love that quote that says, you don't have to light yourself on fire just to keep other people warm. And I, I see that. it all the time. Ooh, I like that. Let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, we're going to put that on our, on our Instagram. I like that. <laughs> me too. Yeah. But I know when I'm when I've got my hand in, in a ton of pots, I'm only giving half-assed stuff to everybody. You know, it, it's not good. It's not quality, and I just feel like I have to do the job twice because I wasn't really there. You know, so I, I know it feels. I, I think it's cultural too. Sometimes how we divide up that time. Some of us are more. Um, what's the word like? maybe independent, some are more, um, I can't think of the word for it. They say like Western culture tends to be more like egocentric and Eastern mm-hmm. cultures are more like about the community and it's, it's more of a we instead of an I. And so that may play a role in how we just decide to divide up our time as well. Um, but I don't think it's fair to say like you taking care of yourself or you sticking to your boundaries is selfish. We just all know our strengths and our limitations. I I think that right there, what you said right there is the most important thing when it comes to setting boundaries is knowing your own limitations. And that only comes with like honest self-reflection. So sometimes you have to sit with yourself and be like, what, what are my limitations? And just ask yourself that question. Um, and some people don't do that. I, I don't think I do that sometimes. And that you have to like pinpoint that part first before you can start setting good boundaries for yourself. And I think, uh, Kim, that's one of the things that I did. And that's why I reached out to you um, uh, in doing that panel uh, about a month ago. Uh, you know, I was, I, was be, I was going through those nightmares. I was, you know, seeing my mother and Vanessa Guillen's mom, like especially like the Hispanic, like Mexican, not speaking English, like being so out of, out of like everything was out of her control. There was no knowledge of like military culture, like nothing. And um, for me, it was like, I was like, that could have been me. Like, you know, that was like, you know, that could have been my mom. And uh, so for me, it was extremely um, traumatizing, re-traumatizing again. And I, I told Kim, I know I called and I was like, so, hey, so I know that like, I cannot be the only one feeling this way. Like we need to make sure now that like 
people are realizing that this is reemergent trauma and that we're reliving everything again and that we just need to advocate for mental health for everyone who's uh, coming out and sharing their stories. And like Kim said, it's just being honest with yourself and recognizing those triggers. So when you're feeling like, okay, like I'm like diving way too much into the details of what happened and like this is like making me feel some kind of way. I was like, I need to like back up. And before I couldn't do that. I did not have those skills. Um, I was not that far out on my healing process. Um, so I was not aware to do it. So what I did was be busy and help others. And now I can just help others take care of myself and practice that, you know, those boundaries within myself and just recognize when it's okay to step back and not feel like I'm not doing enough. You know, uh, like I'm doing something. Otherwise, if I'm not okay, I can't help others. And I, I'm going to agree with B on that too. I think that was uh, one of my downfalls was that I wasn't taking a lot of time to really, you know, look at myself and see what I needed. Um, I had learned, you know, I'm not a professional. <laughs> I can't, you know, do what you guys do. I don't have the credentials to. Um, so, um, in a way, I kind of try to remove the emotional aspect to it and just stick to, you know, like factual information. Uh, so when I did get those, you know, messages, I kind of removed myself and kind of had to really think about it. Um, I recently just went back into uh, seeing a trauma specialist, and uh, which was really hard for me because, you know, being in the military, I was so used to everybody pointing fingers and saying I was, you know, the reason why this happened to me. So I was kind of surprised talking to a civilian uh, trauma specialist when, you know, she did put me in the grieving phase, which was completely new to me. I didn't, you know, after she had said, you know, you're grieving for your who used to be and who you're supposed to be right now. And it kind of hit me <laughs> really hard. And I, I was like, wow, you know, uh, it really kind of pushed me back. You know, like the healing process is not, a ladder. Sometimes you go right back down and then you go back up or you go all the way up and then you go back down. And so you said something when you were introducing yourself that like, I, it just like triggered something in me. Um, you said, and I don't know if I'm quoting you right, but like you said, and then I made, I guess I made so much of a issue that they finally moved me. And I was just like, you didn't make an issue. Like that person <laughs> made the issue, but it's easier for people or I don't know to blame you. And then, and then for you to come out and again, I don't know the order of how it happened, but for you to come out and go to a trauma specialist after the Vanessa Guillen thing, I can only imagine that there are going to be people who say like, oh, yeah, so now that this was all over social media, you've come up with a story, too. Like, why didn't you say it sooner? Or you're just hopping on this, like, trendy bandwagon or something like that. And, like, that shit just pisses me off so hard because it's, like, so say something when I had no support or say something when I had support, but say it early, but say it later, but say it you don't want me to say it at all. It's basically what they're saying, I feel like. And I mean, that... I'm sorry. I think that that's, um, that's like everyone's culture. People are calling it right now, oh, there's the military culture, there's the military culture. Yes, it is. 
but it's also outside the, of the military yeah. because you don't go and talk about it because now you're, you're already overthinking it. Like, well, they're going to say, this is why I'm talking now because this, all of this is going on. Like, why didn't I came forward before? And is the same thing that you're thinking when you're in the military? Like, you know, they're going to say, why did you come out now? Well, why, you know, I saw a quote that said, nobody asked the perpetrator, what was he wearing? Nobody asked me, like, what was he wearing? You know, so it's, I think it's like everyone, like, it's something that's embedded that um, if we decide to come out or and speak out, whenever we decide, it's never the right time. Like you said, I mean, don't say it all, at all. I came out with my story a couple of years ago, and um, I, a couple of my posts on social media went viral, and... I still have like a cult following of Marines that just hate me and will message me things like regret is not rape. Um, will message me things like just make comments about what I look like today. Comments. I, I post dancing videos as part of like my healing um, thing. And I just try to encourage people to just take ownership of their own bodies and feel good in them. And, I get messages from people all the time telling me what a whore and a slut I am still. And, you know, it's, they know that they're saying this to someone who has openly said, I've been retaliated against, I've been re-victimized, I've, I've experienced slut shaming, and then they do it more. Um, unfortunately, a really unfortunate part about coming out with your story, and this is why it's so important to be ready when you do and to have a good support system is that there are always going to be people that don't want to believe you and want to discredit you. And it's just a really unfortunate truth. And it's why survivors are scared to come forward. It's why people are afraid uh, to suffer. You know, that's why they prefer to suffer in silence because you know, listen, I've been in therapy for years and years and years and getting those messages is still really hard. Um, so, what was my point? My point was that sometimes people just suck. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, I think they're victim blaming because they can't reconcile it. Like I don't I have I have a brother, God forbid he ever hear this because I'm calling him out, but he has just lived this like Pollyanna life that's like you get what you give and if you work hard good things happen and like it, it he just can't put it together that sometimes life isn't fair um and i hate he he always jokes that i i broke his rose-colored glasses because i've pointed it out to him several times like hey what happened in like my marriage for example that was nobody that wasn't our fault you know he he blamed himself because my ex was his good friend and he kind of was encouraging of us getting together and so he's like oh and then he had a divorce so he's like I showed you how to get a divorce and I'm like he's a pedophile like <laughs> I don't know how to spell it out for you any differently like it had nothing to do with you dude so I think it's just hard like people they just can't like logically fit it into their schema of life and so that's that's those you know, that, that group of guys you're talking about, that's their inability to wrap their heads around 
another person's reality or around another reality that says, you know, sometimes you don't even deserve anything and shit happens to you and it's not fair. And not everybody has the same starting line and, you know, I don't know, things to carry and stuff like that. So I, I just look at that as like their mental weakness. I used to get really caught up in the why. Like, why did this happen to me? Why was I assaulted six times? Why, you know, did my mother die the way that she did? Why did I have to experience child abuse before joining the military? Why did my ex-husband, you know, uh, threaten to kill me until I got an abortion? I mean, these are all things that I've experienced in my life. And when it's really common, by the way, for people who have been in one abusive relationship to be in a lot. So this isn't like, well, bombshell. I mean, my story isn't super unique in that way, but um, I, I used to get caught up in the whys of things like, why did this person do this to me? And why did this person do that to me? And why did this person send me that message? And why, why do all these people, I must be awful. I must be the worst. I must just be a magnet for, um, you know, abuse. I, I, I must do something to make, make people want to do this to me. So it has to be my fault. And I, I used to carry that around with me for a really long time until I just came to the realization that like, it doesn't really, you know, I could have, I, I never deserved any of those things. And it wasn't because of anything that I did. It wasn't because of how I look. It wasn't because of the way that I speak. It wasn't because whether, you know, I'm intelligent and I'm strong. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with me. It has something to do with people wanting to assert their power over others in ugly ways. You can't uh, blame yourself for someone wanting to do that to you. But I think when you're a victim of trauma, you, the intuit, like you try to like analyze every little bit of this and how can I prevent it in the future? And oftentimes it comes back to like, well, if everyone else is blaming me, I might as well blame myself too, right? That's, I'll just yeah. take it out, take it off of everybody else. But that's, um, it's, it's not fair and it's not right. Yeah. And some people even, um, I've heard identify as this, like they will get way on the other end of the spectrum. Like they'll gain a ton of weight or, um, do things to kind of sabotage the way that they look or their health because that keeps people away from them. So it's mm -hmm. like, okay, fine, you win. I won't be sexy anymore. Will exactly. that stop you from raping me? You know, and like, or, yeah. or I've even heard, and I think this is an, this is also a normal reaction for people to be hypersexual or to mm -hmm. hypersexualize themselves after a sexual assault because it gives them mm -hmm. a sense of control over, well, I'm choosing this behavior um, even if it's maladaptive or like, even if you do negative coping skills like alcohol or drugs, it's a way of controlling, you know, um, your choices. I'm choosing to do this, even if it's maladaptive um, or even if it's not healthy for you, but that's also a way to cope. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. By the way, I didn't mean that anyone overweight is not sexy. I just <laughs> meant like, <laughs> also sexy. I, I took that very offensively. <laughs> Because, you know, we always talk about me not working out, so. <laughs> um, Pamela, I wanted to go back when you say you have this group of Marines uh, who, like, you know, are attacking you. Yeah. Um, you know, when I hear those things and I, I've seen it in conversations and uh, knock on wood, it hasn't happened to me yet, but it probably will, you know, as I, like, 
do more podcasts or like, you know, live or I express what has happened to me. But I almost feel like that is like the wrong version of brotherhood. Like they feel like they're almost like sticking up for each other because that's my that's my brother in arms, blah blah blah. But no, like that's the wrong concept of that. Like you, like you know, it's not just the fact that you guys are brotherhood or what whatever it is. And sometimes like you know you just sticking out for each other. It's not it's not that. It's like. <laughs> Calling out somebody, having the cojones to call somebody out is like, you know, that's when you do something noble. Not saying you're sticking up for your brother by attacking this other person. It's like, no, call him out on his shit. And I'm sorry. <laughs> and just be, you know, be truthful. And then guess what? Then you're doing something honorable. You're living by those values. Um, so, yeah. So that's I, when I hear that, I'm just like, that's just the opposite of what brotherhood means. Honestly. And I think, I think when you said value, like it kind of triggered me when you said values, I, I think it's <laughs> conflicting for a lot of people in the military because, you know, we have those strong military core values of like loyalty, duty, honor, respect. Mm-hmm. And um, you learn those in the military when basic training. And then oftentimes they're like, they're not um, modeled very well for you when it comes to sexual assault or accountability in the military. And then, so I know for me, when I left the service, it took me a long time to figure out what my values were because I didn't know. I didn't know who I was anymore because I wasn't no longer the person who I was before the military. And I no longer felt like those were my core values anymore because they weren't modeled appropriately for me. And so I think we lose a lot of our identity even coming out of a trauma like this and also military. Um, Just transitioning out of military by itself is difficult for a lot of service members so i think there's a a lot of compounding stuff going on there yeah and for loyalty you know that's the that's the wrong type of loyalty a lot of uh survivors feel that by coming out you're not being loyal and that's one of the core values you know it's like i'm not being loyal like i'm i'm you know, I'm going to hurt the person's career, or I'm going to ruin the unit's image, or I'm going to ruin my image of this, like, perfect soldier I thought I was, you know, and uh, it's, it's like the wrong version of loyalty, and I think uh, a lot of people, when they uh, have a problem with survivors speaking up, is like, they feel like you're being disloyal to the service and to what you signed up for, um, but yeah, so... I agree with you. And I think that's why I was so afraid to to say anything for so long was because I didn't want people to think that I wasn't proud of my service. Um, But what I would say now to that person I was five years ago or to to the people that that say, well, well, where's your patriotism or where's your, aren't you proud of your service? Um, You know, if we don't speak on these issues, how do we expect to make the service what we, what we believed it to be when we joined? I would love for the armed forces to be what I believed them to be when I joined. And I think the only put on their brochure, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like if if, like, let's make it what, what you say it is. Like, why don't we just make it what you claim it is to be? Because it is not that way. If you're going to recruit young people to join and wear this uniform, you better ensure that the culture that you tell them they're joining is, is actually in fact the culture that they're joining. Yeah. Cause this is never the war that I thought, you guys were going to be entering into, you know, this internal war, but 
with this whole hashtag, this whole movement, I think a lot of people aren't paying attention to the effect that it really has on us. Um, like me, I have uh, active investigations. I have to relive my story every single time someone calls me asking details for, you know, hey, uh, what happened on this day? Oh, okay, thank you. You know, so it's like, that's probably why I'm so comfortable telling my story because I've told it. You know, I still have breakdowns when I least expect it, but I still have to tell my story every single time through this investigation. And, um, and uh, people, people are very uh, ignorant to uh, MST, especially civilians in the way that we heal and the way that, um, and, 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 and I'm pretty sure they can even do research too. And I know a lot don't, but I've seen a lot of comments out there. Um, I've seen a lot of, um, oh, that's not how you guys are supposed to dress. You can, oh, you're wearing a tank top. Oh, you're, oh, you can do your makeup. So you must be in a good mental state. It's like, that doesn't define, you know, I can be amazing one day and then the next day just be completely down. And so that, that part really makes me angry, but I don't know if that makes you guys angry. <laughs> I know it makes me so angry. I'm just like, are you serious? All these like people to using this and it's saying- sweet, right? Because it's like, I mean, there's been a movement of female veteran survivors who have been, you know, in the, working for this against military sexual trauma and violence against women in the military since the Vietnam era. I mean, yeah. there have been people who have been doing this work for a very long time. And I think it's important that we keep keep those women in the forefront because those are people who have experienced way before this was ever a trend, way before this was ever, way before we had built any kind of space for survivors um, in uniform, they've been out there making that space for us. And um, I've, I'm more frustrated for them than I am for myself because I've been advocating for a couple of years. I've been a survivor, you know, since I was 19 and I'm 32 now, but um you know, it's frustrating when you think, well, where were you when I was homeless doing drugs, like literally on the street? Where were you when I um, didn't, was terrified to leave my house because I thought if I walked outside, someone might attack me. I mean, where were you then? And it's, it's easy to get caught up in that, right? But the reality is that there's, we have a movement for a reason and the movement is to show, show people, hey, there's a problem here. Is it frustrating that we didn't get the attention that we've, the, the, yeah, the attention that we've needed. Absolutely. And I feel you on that. It is frustrating. Um, but what I'm very thankful for is that, you know, the women that are, that are men and women, people that are in uniform right now, um, surviving this misogynistic culture, maybe they'll, it'll, it'll spare them. Maybe, you know, uh, Selma Hayek getting involved will spare someone. Maybe people with money and power, you know, they, they, they can do things that we can't. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's frustrating to be like, oh, now you care about us? For sure. But it's, it's also the point. We, we want more people to care. Like, please start caring. Please. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's been ages. You know, this isn't new and that makes me sick. But also, it isn't new and that makes me feel like, well, maybe we're making progress. And I do think as hard as it is for us to start speaking out about these issues, um, that it is, it's like the yucky 
the yucky middle part until you, it's where the change happens. That's where we are. You know, we're not to the other end where we can look back and be like, nobody does that anymore. You know, <laughs> but, um, but we have to go through this in order to get there. It's like so funny. My dad was in the military and, and when he heard about one of our other family friends that had um, experienced some, I don't know if it was, like MST or if it was just, um, not just, but if it was sexual harassment in the workplace, but he goes, really? That happens? And he's 65, by the way. He was like, really? That happens? But we watched videos on not to do that. You know, <laughs> like, it just, it just didn't He was like, huh? Like, oh, so the problem is that we're still watching those same videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need some updated videos here. It was like, yes, I know the exact same video you watch, and we're still watching them, and I think that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, though, because what I actually, I, I, I don't have the best relationship with my father, but I spoke with him um, earlier this year about some of the things that I've been working on, and um, I, I've been working in the, the MST space for a while, and I finally had the courage to tell him for the first time. I've been out of the Navy for five years. Um, my dad was a Marine and I told him that I experienced this six times in uniform and that it was swept under the rug every time. And my father said, oh yeah, I don't doubt it. Wow. That was my father's response. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's heartwarming to hear that your father said like, well, we watched videos. What? <laughs> um, you know, there are other people who know that this happens and I have a feeling that my dad was one of those folks that just turned and, and didn't look, you know what I mean? And um, yeah. just hearing that response about his own child was hard for me, but I, I realize it's not really about me. That's, he's a, he's a symptom of the system too. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what he's seen or what he experienced in uniform, but for it to be something that was so believable to hear. You know, I, I didn't want him to tell me that he didn't believe me. He, he yeah. definitely believed me. It just, it didn't surprise him even a little bit. And um, that I think is the alarming piece for me. I wonder if he had suspicions all along that this would, like <sighs> being in there, that he, that maybe that was like a hard pill to swallow. Like, I, I, I don't know what I would do if my kid was like, I'm going off to do something completely, utterly dangerous. And I'm like, you're never going to, I hope differently for you, but you're never going to believe me if I told you the monsters that exist yeah. out there. I don't know. It's got to be so difficult. And I know we talked about this um, as we, as we talk about wrapping up here, I, I know Karina, you mentioned that, you know, your mom was a really big support network for you. I mean, it's got to be so difficult. I mean, for me, it's different because I was, I think, most of our listeners, if you listened to previous podcast episodes, know that I was in foster care and then I was adopted. So, but I know for those that have really strong parental relationships or really strong family relationships, it's got to be so difficult for them to watch their child in a situation like this and feel helpless or hopeless to not be able to do anything. Because with military law, a lot of us know that it's, it is very difficult. This is a very steep uphill battle for a lot of um, survivors that are in the system right now. So I just always feel so, you know, just so heartbroken for the parents watching this on the sidelines and not really being able to do much to help support their 
And Kim, I think that's uh, one of the reasons why, like, I never told my family because I was, I almost like wanted, I wanted to protect them, but I also knew that they, they weren't very knowledgeable on the culture or the law or anything. Yeah. Um, you know, I knew there was like nothing they could do. So why, you know, put them through, through that pain. Um, but I think that's one of the main Hard. things that we really need to advocate for. And I know in the military, like we get training, right? Like once a year we go and check that box, but what about the training for the families? What about the training for, you know, on military culture, military law, like the procedures and like all this stuff. I know we go through boot camp and they make us like our own adult and stuff, but <laughs> you know, like they, they're like, okay, let me cut the cord. You don't need your family anymore but no it's, yes. it's like when you like when you marry like your family is your support system and if your family is not okay guess what you're not going to be a hundred percent uh in a battlefield or whatever so it goes the same way for a single soldier you clip them from their family and their family has like no idea what's happening they don't really know they just know they're super proud of their kid because they're serving you know this country mm -hmm. and they're doing honorable things but they don't know all of the other stresses that go. So a married soldier has the support of their family, their family's being briefed, they get this family meetings, but the single soldier, like, who do they have? Like, That's a good point. They have a whole a point. Like, they have a whole bunch of people who, if something happens, now they become, like, they're not their brothers and sisters anymore. Now is like, I don't even know who's safe. Like, who am I safe to be around? And they don't have the support from their family. And a lot of us, we don't tell our families because we know they're out of the loop and they don't know what's really going on. I don't understand, yeah. So I think education and education as a whole, like family for those single soldiers is like incredibly important as well. I think, um, I think with my situation, I know I didn't tell my mother right away once it happened um you know another thing with uh latina families is that we really value the women um the women do a lot in our culture and uh i think it made me look weak i thought my mom was going to be disappointed uh and sorry i didn't tell her until you know until i had to until it was like one of those things where i need to update her because i was getting terrified and um you know and once i did you know she was she was angry she's like karina you needed to go do do this and this and this and, uh, and she's like but it's okay we're gonna get you help we're gonna do this and uh it was really hard for her to even advocate with me because every time she would call they would always use the excuse of oh your daughter is her own adult so we can talk to her but we can't talk to you and so that type of behavior was like or assistance would call my mother back not even the real person who she reached out to so it was really mm -hmm. frustrated on her and you know even coming home one day she had told me you know um she felt like she was you know letting me down and it was hurting her as a mother because you know when once i got home you know she made me detox from all the medication i came home with and she's like you're not taking any of this and it really hurt me and i was like oh i need it the army told me i need it mom i need it she's like you don't need it and you know healing and understanding like where she was coming from finally she had told me you know uh she got to that place where she didn't know how to help me because you know she she saw her her daughter her baby you know she always tells me you know i don't care how old you are you're always my baby you're always my daughter and uh you know at that point that's when i was like i need to go to therapy because my mom is not my therapist
past, you know, and I can't do that to her. Uh, so that's when I reached out and now we're just kind of working on that relationship day by day. But yeah, single soldiers really don't have family members, you know, especially when you're overseas, like D was in Germany, you know, that's, oh my gosh, so far away. That's completely opposite of, you know, Mexico. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It can be so isolating, definitely. Sorry, Kim. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it can be, I was in Germany too. It can be very isolating to not have your support system out there and then trying to figure out your new, like your way through the army or the military and then not have a good support system. It's, yeah, definitely isolating. Go ahead, Erin. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you don't have a strong family, create a strong family and it might not be one of blood, but one of your choosing. Like I have a great tribe of women that, um, I rely on and I'm so grateful to them because um, there's only men left in my family so they don't they don't get everything all the time um, but this has been so great I am so utterly privileged to meet such wonderful people and that you know Kim came up with this idea for a podcast and everything like like Dee was saying about having that support system and understanding I mean I, I felt so validated that someone understood that because that's the whole premise that I built my therapy practice on is like you have chaplains and you have um, peer support in law enforcement and in all these other professions, but like what ties the family to the job, you know, because there are even studies that show the better the family support system, the better the soldier. And so they are not unrelated. It is not just, a job. This is a lifestyle. So we've got to figure out how to marry the two together. So I just want to ask you guys one last question before we go. Um, where do we go from here? And what are you guys going to do tomorrow to make the world a better place? I mean, it doesn't need to be huge. I was thinking <laughs> for me, um, and I'll just keep myself accountable to this. I'm going to pray. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get more connected with my spirituality and I'm seeing opportunities happen that I could never wish for and I never felt worthy of. And I'm just trying to practice gratitude in, in everything that happens in life. And so I'm going to pray for um, all of these people that have been hiding away or been carrying these burdens all on their own, that they be able to find support and that they be able to find that um, rekindling of hope in their lives and that they know that they're not alone. You know, they might feel alone in that moment, but there are a lot of us that have spent a little bit of time being dormant. And so just because you need that space to maybe recharge doesn't mean that there aren't, there doesn't exist people that who know, who could know you and love you and that you matter. So what do you think, Kim? I just love you so much. And I think that that was beautiful. I love it. Um, I'm just really happy for you, for your new, all of the stuff that's going on in your life too. But that's separate from this right now. I, I think personally for me, um, I can say pers on a personal level and also on like a community level, I will practice better self-compassion. I know we talk about that often and we kind of kind of briefly spoke about that today is that, you know, being self-compassionate, even when you are struggling through triggers, 
or even when you are having um, maladaptive coping, like I said, be self-compassionate and just forgive yourself for some of the, even the bad coping skills that you've developed over the years. That's just a trauma response and you can move on and heal from that. On a community level, I mean, where do we go from here? That's a great question um, that I think Pam's going to have a really good answer for. But um, <laughs> but yeah, just continuing what we're doing. I know if anybody follows my Invisible Combat um, platform, I, we do a lot of unif unification of justice efforts. And um, I'm, I'm all about mental health. Like I said, I like to always check on people's mental health. I do a lot of mental health posts. I do a lot of mental health discussions and interviews um, and support groups. I do have that female veteran support group. I think it's really important for us as we continue on our justice efforts or as our, we continue on our legislative efforts and things like that, that we stay unified and that we realize that we this battle is not a single person battle. It is you know something that we all have to unify together and we're just stronger together and stronger unified. Um, but also I like to balance things with advocacy and mental health. So that's what I'm going to be doing personally as I continue on in this justice effort. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Whoever's next can. I go next. Um, uh, for me, it's going to be, I'm going to continue to be aware of my uh, triggers and how much uh, time I spend in uh, social media um, because that that'll give me the focus and sanity to be more effective in the community uh, advocacy and engagement that I'm trying to be part of. Um, I know that for me, if I feel myself with so like, reading the comments and all the pages that I'm a part of and all of that is just going to cloud uh, my vision of what I can give of myself, how much of it, and what am I, what's my really real goal? So for me, uh, just continue, continuing and improving uh, my awareness of my, uh, my own um, limitations and just so that I have a better, um, a clearer view of what I want to be an advocate for. Personally, I think I can, you know, start making more boundaries <laughs> instead of trying to be busy all the time and work on, I guess, that grieving process, you know, recognizing that I am not the person I joined the military as, but I am also, that doesn't make me weak, you know, so I have to kind of find that new identity and also get rid of all the bad habits that I've developed and get out of survival mode. And for, I guess, the community, I guess, uh, keep spreading awareness, uh, you know, keep reaching out, keep doing whatever I can without pushing myself over because, you know, I've, I've done that and it's not a good feeling. So, you know, um, yeah, just anything, anything that I can help make a difference. You know, I'm like, I'm the first person. I'm like, just tell me if I can help anybody or do anything for anybody. Uh, you know, I started that, uh, you know, I want to bring back, you know, all of our stories because I feel like, you know, with all of this, they, that a lot of people have kind of gotten like washed over. So I was like, I would love to have, you know, um, doing like an Instagram live and talking to people and bringing this back and really getting to know people on that level and helping however I can. So. Oh, um, 
I think the question was, how are you going to make the world a better place tomorrow? No big deal, right? Just what are you going to do? Wait, um, girl. <laughs> you, you, are, you have to come with it. Just... <laughs> well, th this is what I'm. This is what I, I'm. The first thing I thought when you said that, I think, I think as people who who all have served in served their, their communities in one way or another, and as women, I think it's just really natural for us to when you think about making the world a better place, you think about well, what can I do for somebody else, so that I did my part. And um, that is a really important part, of, of course, of advocacy. But I also, you know, what would happen if everybody started their day by going, I'm going to be really kind to myself first before I do anything else today, before I make that phone call, before I send that text, before I start in with a hectic schedule that is my work. What if I just did something kind for me first? And I, I really feel like if we are kind of shining that love and light on ourselves first, it makes it really easy for us to spread it, right? Because it's, it's so cliche, but it's like you got to fill up your own cup. Um, I'm going to commit to filling up my own cup first because I think I mentioned here a little bit that I have a problem with that. Um, but I also know it to be true. If, if we all started our day by really giving ourselves a moment, whether it's prayer or meditation or a favorite book, whatever it is, whatever it is that helps you feel like you're your best you. For me, I have not been dancing like at all. Um, and I, I've just been too busy. Well, I haven't made the time. So tomorrow I'm, I'm going to make the time and I'm going to start making the time every day again like I used to. And I appreciate all of all of you for this like amazing conversation to remind me that I deserve that. Yes. Uh, yes to all of that, because I think that's so important. Like we always say, but first R and R and we all, Aaron and I have been really consistent and just that's been something that we've put forward before anything, before advocacy, before we talk about heavy discussions, before we talk about mental health, first R and R. And that means refueling yourself, making sure you're self-caring. Um, so I think that was the perfect thing to end this episode mm -hmm. on because it kind of brought it back full circle to what are you doing to take care of yourself um, as you continue to advocate for whatever you're advocating for out there, whether it be military sexual trauma or rather about mental health or whatever your personal passion is, um, refuel yourself, take care of yourself, practice good rest and recuperation. Hey guys, editor Dave here with an editorial note. No, this is a little different. Usually the way these things work is Aaron and Kim will record them and then they'll e email me the files and then I'll work some editorial magic. Uh, obviously this episode had a lot of moving parts to it. And uh, so I actually have a little bit of bonus content for you. What we're gonna hear right now is actually an account from Karina, who you met in the show, uh, speaking about her experience at Fort Hood. Originally, this bit of dialogue happened uh, during her intro uh, to the episode, and it didn't feel like the right place for it to happen. And uh, normally, I can move stuff around, but it's it's a real big chunk of uh, of dialogue, and I couldn't really find a, a good place for it to go within the episode. 
And I'm sorry if that caused a little bit of confusion because you can actually hear in the episode, Aaron, Aaron and Kim refer back to what we're about to hear right now, and, and you guys didn't hear it. <laughs> so uh, I did want to play it for you guys, though. I wanted you to hear it. Uh, I did feel like it was uh, important, uh, and I felt like it was insightful, uh, but and I didn't want to just leave it out entirely. Uh, I just couldn't <laughs> I couldn't work my editorial magic well enough to get it to, uh, to, to fit within the context of everything else. And like I said, uh, there, there are a lot of voices on this uh, podcast, it, it being a, a panel discussion. And uh, we kind of needed to zip through those intros as, as succinctly as we could. So here we go. Uh, this is Karina talking about her experience at Fort Hood. I had something that prevented me from doing better. Uh, it was just one of those things that, you know, OK, yeah, I'm injured, but I can still do amazing things until I went to Fort Hood. Once I went to Fort Hood, I was organized as the broken soldier. Um, you know, my unit was deployed in Poland. So when I went, we were, our whole mission was, you know, go through SRP, uh, get ready to, you know, deploy. But every single time there was some type of detail, some type of work event, and, you know, I volunteered or someone would come in looking for a soldier and I, you know, I'm standing there like, hey, I'm here. Uh, they would say, no, don't, don't forget about Lopez. She's, she's useless, you know? And so that kind of ruined a lot of my self-esteem, you know, uh, going from this, this kind of, no one can stop me. I might be injured, but I'm still going to do the best I can. And, uh, to, wow, I'm completely useless. Uh, this is how they see me. I'm broken. I'm going to get kicked out of the military anyways, because, um, I'm injured. And so that kind of had a lot to do with just, you know, the, the environment at Fort Hood and bringing me down. Um, it was really crazy. Uh, that was my first time being in rear D, you know, and uh, think crazy things happen. And, you know, I'm over here starting fall semester in school and I was super excited and, you know, I just got promoted and, you know, I was like, yes, I'm doing this. It's okay. They, they're just bullies. Like, you know, my mom's biggest thing was, you know, don't let the negativity stop you. So I was like, you know what, I'm not going to even let it get to me. And, um, I remember one night, uh, I had a lot of problems with my roommate. Um, and you know, one night things had, I had actually, um, a girl that was a little too drunk had kind of found her way. The party kind of found its way into my room from my roommate's room and uh, I had tried to help her. And when I had left the room for a quick second, I had came back to, you know, uh, inappropriate behavior. And so I had kind of separated that situation and, you know, sent her home. But unfortunately I kind of kept myself there. And so, um, you know, and I always tell everybody that's, you know, obviously, you know, sexual assault, it takes a part of you away, but you have hope, you know, in that, in that moment, you're like, okay, I can go to somebody. Somebody's going to help me. I'm going to report this. So that was like my, my peace, my clarity right there, knowing that if I go to my chain of command, they're going to help me. But unfortunately that's not what happened. And so, um, that was the biggest, <laughs> the biggest thing that I had realized, um, then it became, you know, harassment, um, 
uh, going to my room, having several people in my room, including the person who sexually assaulted me. Um, and that was just, that was just awful. So finally, you know, that time comes where, uh, I guess I caused so much of a issue with the unit. They sent me to another unit only to be followed by the same people. And uh, that's when, you know, the belittling, the sexual harassment, uh, the, the sexual comments are made. Um, anything to degrade you as a person, you know, the mocking, the ish you know, the stalking, you know, that was the biggest thing, you know, that you, you lost your, you know, being a, being a, you know, specialist, you're confined to one room, one room in the barracks. And to know that that's not safe, it really destroys everything. You know, I, I was that soldier who, you know, I ended up going to NTC and I would have to FaceTime my mother uh, and say, mom, I have to use the bathroom, but I feel like if I'm walking, you know, in the dark, someone can grab me. And we, I think we've all seen NTC bathrooms and mm-hmm. oh, it's just, it's so open. Anyone has access to just hide in there if they really want to get you. And then all the females have one bathroom and everyone knows which one it is. So it just seemed like a setup for me. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It was, it was just really, it was really awful. It was, it was my personal hell. That's what I called it. I was like, I don't know what I did in life to deserve all of this, but it, it was, you know, I became, I went into survival mode, you know, and it was clinging to anything that I can get. You know, if it was a PT test, maxing that out to make me feel better, I would be in the gym, you know, at four o'clock in the morning working out, uh, you know, at one point I took five college classes because I was like, I can do, I can do. I was pushing myself beyond this limit and uh, putting way too much on my plate until I just, you know, and I kept fighting. That's, that's the bad part. I kept fighting. I kept going to the highest of the highest and going to, you know, started my congressional, started all these investigations only to be laughed at to be a joke and then things just got 10 times worse and so eventually you know um it became you know that's when my mom kind of became my my advocate she she wanted me home um and so that's when things started coming into place and I started finally after you know my command had failed me I was sent home and if you, that wasn't even good. The transition was just awful. <laughs> Cause you, you think you, you know, you go home and you're like, Oh my God, I'm finally safe. But it's a whole different adjustment. Mm-hmm. Where's home for you? I'm in Raleigh right now, North Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that was a whole nightmare too. Cause now, you know, I was like, I really had my career stolen from me and I had to adjust to that. And it's like, where do you, where do you start? And uh, I don't know if any of you can relate, but uh, it's like I hit, I kept healing on different levels. You know, there was the angry healing where you just get so angry at people and Mm -hmm. you know, you, you blame them for like, why didn't you see this happening to me? Why didn't you do anything? And you get mad at people who you shouldn't really be mad at. And I guess that's just a, a phase and then you feel guilty and then you break down and then you cry and then you just go back to angry. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't even know. But once yeah. I saw Vanessa again, 
I was, the bad thing is about that is that I, her story was one of those that you saw on social media. You saw the posters, you saw, you know, um, the posts, but you didn't see anything on the news, or at least I know I didn't. Uh, and I know uh, it was just like, oh, there's a missing soldier. Like, what happened? You know, and I would call people that I knew back in forehead, and I'm like, hey, what happened? There's a missing soldier. And they're like, there's a missing soldier? No, there's not. What are you talking about? There's not a missing soldier. And I'm like, yes, there is. There's a missing soldier. What happened? Do you guys know anything? You know, her unit's right down the street from our unit. What's going on? Nobody knew anything. Um, I think it was a couple weeks, and it's like, She's still missing you guys. Where is she? Uh, I think it was uh, at least like a month and a half before I saw the video with um, with Vanessa's mother who had claimed that she had went through um, sexual harassment from an NCO. And that's what really kind of hit me uh, because technically, you know, my case was the one before hers. And if you know, that's when I even felt even guilty, you know, maybe I didn't fight hard enough for her. Maybe I, you know, I know I went to like 40 different, you know, media channels, but maybe I should have went to 50. Uh, what could I have done? And it wasn't until, you know, um, I had started the hashtag, you know, um, stating what I had went through at Fort Hood, you know, I had went to multiple units in Fort Hood, not just one, and they were all the same exact, and uh, they just kept getting worse and worse and worse, and, you know, it's like, this is what you go through, you know, I heard the comments, people were saying, you know, um, why were, why didn't she report it, and it's like, you can't report it. I reported it. It went 10 times worse. You know, it's not even if she, even if she would have reported it, they would have covered it up just like mine. And so that's when, after I made the hashtag, um, that's when I was like, I got really angry again. And I was like, this wasn't on me. I fought. I fought every single second to the point where I'm still in survival mode, still trying to figure things out, still trying to help people, still trying to spread awareness.